Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I want to say a few words about Lisa Monaco, the former Homeland Security advisor to President Barack Obama. Uh, Before I do, I want to remind you one more time, and I promise you I won't be doing this for much longer, uh, to go on to webbyawards.com if you like what we're doing here at The Axe Files. Look up the best interviews slash talk show category. Uh, and vote for the Axe Files. Look up the best host category and vote for me. This voting closes on April 20th, and you'll have a lot to say about how this all turns out. So Lisa Monaco, she's been a top aide at the FBI in the Justice Department, the federal prosecutor who put some of the Enron swindlers in prison in the 2000s, and most recently, the president's top advisor on homeland security in the Obama administration. Lisa came by the Institute of Politics and sat down with me recently to talk about her path to that position, how the threats have changed and morphed facing this country, and what she sees for the future. Lisa Monaco, welcome. Thank you. Um, I... uh, was looking through your your biography and so on, and I, I was thinking to myself, no kid grows up saying, <laughs> someday I'm going to be the Homeland Security Advisor to the President of the United States. But your background, your, your, your dad was like a, a doctor, right? Mm-hmm, that's right. And uh, how did all of this evolve? When you were a kid, what were you thinking about, uh, about your life as, and your options and... Well, you're absolutely right. If you had told me when I was a kid, or frankly, if you'd even told me five years ago or six years ago that I was going to end up being the president's Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor, I would have said you were nuts, quite frankly. Growing up, I uh, was extremely fortunate um, to grow up with three brothers, which I think maybe had a uh, had an impact. A toughening effect. A toughening effect on um, uh, some of the situations I've since found myself in and some of the um, career choices I've made. But I think it really traces back to my parents who um, are the product of immigrant households, hard work ethos, prioritizing education, and being really focused. Both, uh, from, uh, both Italian? Um, my dad uh, is Italian, Italian-American heritage. Both of his uh, parents immigrated. My grandfather on my father's side came over here from Italy at the age of 16. Uh, went through Ellis Island. I've been seen his name there. Um, went to Philadelphia and um, started, opened a barber shop at Sixth and Pine. I think it's now a Starbucks, probably. <laughs> um, and uh, took a room. It's a great American story. Took a room in a rooming house at a in uh, South Broad Street in South Philadelphia, where my grandmother's parents were keeping the rooming house, and unsurprisingly, he ends up marrying the innkeeper's daughter, and she was from a neighboring hill town in Italy. Uh, So they raised four kids. My father is the youngest, and, um, uh, you know, first-generation American kids, and he went to Central High in Philadelphia and then on to University of Pennsylvania and then on to Harvard Medical School. So he uh, worked his way in a in the great American story, and and my mother is from um, parents who's, who are of Welsh and Irish and Belgian backgrounds, so very hardy stock there too. So I basically said I've got Irish on the one side and Italian on the other, which made for some very fiery family <laughs> conversations. But the point is that they really they instilled in us 
uh, an appreciation for hard work. And, and I saw them focus on how they could give us every advantage, my brothers and I, which they did. And we were extremely fortunate. Um, all the while, uh, while also instilling in us the values that they had because they grew up without those advantages. And it's an interesting test for parents, and um, I was very fortunate that they focused so hard on that. You grew up in the Boston area. I did, in Newton, people, Massachusetts. People can, Yeah, I know Newton. My, my mom lived there for oh, yeah. the last years of her life yeah. at the LaSalle College. Oh, yes. Yep. Assisted living, yeah. It's yep. nice. It's a beautiful community. It's a beautiful area. So, uh, but you weren't thinking in those days were you even thinking about a career in the law? Was that in your plans? I really wasn't. Um, I always knew I gravitated to writing and reading and history and the humanities. I tended to shy away from math and science, much to my father, the doctor's chagrin. Any of your siblings become doctors? No. My brothers uh, each at various times kind of flirted with it, but I think my my father... Um, uh, has, re- has reached such uh, acclaim and, and accomplishment in his field. As, as a, a transplant surgeon. As a transplant surgeon, yes. Uh, one of the pioneers in uh, kidney transplant surgery and trained the team in, in Boston that um, ultimately uh, got federal funding to do the liver transplants there. So I, I think he reached such a height that uh, his kids rightly figured out that they could probably not do better than dad. So we paved our own way. Um, that happens. I think that's it's intimidating. I think it probably when you have is. Parents who in a particular field who are very and successful. I see it in politics. You know, sometimes you see the kids go into politics because that was expected of them. But mm-hmm. it's always like a very daunting thing. It's true. So there was there weren't going to be any uh, no Monaco dynasty of uh, <laughs> of uh, transplant surgeons, but. Um, it actually became my aversion to math became pretty funny when I ended up on the Enron task force, which is, of course, involved a lot of um, kind of funky At the accounting. Justice Department when you were a prosecutor. That's exactly right. Yeah. So I wasn't. I was thinking about ultimately when I was in college. I thought about um, getting a PhD in literature um, and going further in my studies there, and then realized I probably wasn't going to be able to get a job in. Um, Couldn't a, open up a literature store. What's that? Couldn't hang your shingle as a PhD in yeah, literature. that that uh, proved to be a uh, a fleeting uh, fleeting idea. But uh, I really actually got the bug for um, law and policy when I worked on Capitol Hill for Joe Biden for then Senator Joseph R. Biden, then Chairman Joseph R. Biden of the Judiciary Committee at a pretty active time, right? Very active. It was, I guess, 92 to 94 were the, yes. were the years I was uh, on the Judiciary Committee staff. Yeah. So there were there were some Supreme Court uh Yep, there were two. There were two summers I was there. There was a Supreme Court uh, confirmation hearing each time. The first one was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And the second one was Stephen Breyer. Right. So you were on you were on the research end of it. So I were was. you involved in researching them? I I helped do whatever the lawyers on staff because at this time I was a year or two out of college. So um, I basically did whatever the lawyers on staff asked of me, and um, from research to putting together briefing books to um, at the time we didn't. Uh, there was no internet. There was uh, none of the ease of research now. There was good old-fashioned books and newspapers and the like, and uh, so I spent a lot of time doing that. Different. It was different. Uh, it was a different process back then, mm-hmm. uh, more uh, more civilized. I mean, I guess you'd come off uh, there, there a few years earlier, the Clarence Thomas yeah. hearings had taken place, and those were pretty contentious. I remember, um, so I joined the Judiciary Committee staff after the Thomas hearings, yeah. and but I remember being a, a, a young person in Washington, driving around and having the experience of being stopped at a stoplight and hearing the hearings coming out of the car radios of uh, people. It was it obviously riveted um, uh, Washington, D.C. at the time, and obviously took a toll on uh, the Judiciary Committee and, and how those hearings were handled later. Um, you know, when 
Joe Biden was the chairman and Orrin Hatch was the ranking member. There certainly was partisan differences, but there was a sense of um, coming together and working together on issues. One of the other things I worked on uh, on the Judiciary Committee staff was the Violence Against Women Act, yes. which ended up becoming a bipartisan a bill. I remember uh, Orrin Hatch saying famously he wanted it called the Biden-Hatch Violence Against Women Act. I'm not sure that ended up happening, but yes. um, there was an ability he to work together. probably isn't going back to change it now either, I would guess. But, right. Uh, the, um, uh, so this this led you to uh, to want to become a lawyer? Yeah. So what I it's interesting. I, the experience that I had at the Judiciary Committee was really quite formative. Um, from working on the confirmation hearing process to legislation like the Violence Against Women Act to the crime bill. Yes, um, which was huge. Which was, which was a really significant act. watershed piece of legislation. It's also obviously come under some controversy since, but I think it represented a, uh, an effort to deal with what was um, Yeah, people don't remember, the but the, there was a huge uh, spike of crime at that time, yep. and there was a real real deep concern across the country about him. Profoundly so, and and um, it really was a massive undertaking. I remember working with the lawyers on staff to help manage the amendment process on the Senate floor. Um, but by and large, I worked— But, you know, you just to interrupt for sure. a second, the, um, the big controversy uh, from that bill was about determinate sentencing yeah. and these— Longer sentences uh, for and le- lack of flexibility for judges right. in terms of sentencing. Uh, in retrospect, and now with the wisdom of someone who went on to, I don't mm-hmm. want to, I don't want to tip my mitt on the story mm-hmm. here, but who went on to become a, a very high level prosecutor and yeah. so on. Uh, do you have uh, a different view now than you did y- then as a young person working on this about whether that was an advisable way to go? So it's interesting. I think it was a reason effort at the time to deal with what was, um, as you said, a, really a skyrocketing crime problem. So you're referring to mandatory minimum sentences. There were other things like the three strikes and you're out bill, um, which got incorporated in, uh, in there as well. That in particular, I think, ended up having unintended consequences, which I think people of all stripes have, have acknowledged. Mandatory minimums became something that the courts ended up and um, putting some more process around um, and sentencing guidelines and the like. So it turned out, I think, ultimately to have served, provided a service at the time, but in but over time uh, needed to be reformed. Do you think there are inherent biases in the system? I mean, that's part of why this, you know, we have a huge, yeah. hugely high incarceration rate and a very disproportionately tilted mm-hmm. uh, toward minorities. Well, actually, what I saw, um, because I went on to be, as you said, before I was on the Enron Task Force, I worked as an assistant U.S. attorney in in Washington, D.C. And there, it's a very unique role because it's the only federal prosecutor, federal prosecutor's office that serves as both the local Mm -hmm. prosecutor, the local DA, and the federal prosecutor. And so as what we used to call as a baby prosecutor in that U.S. attorney's office, I handled very, very low-level crime. So uh, federal prosecutors don't handle this type of crime in in any other district. So it was literally like night court, the old show, night court, Mm -hmm. every day in in that office handling guns and drugs and shoplifting and the like. And what I saw, David, in that experience was a profound impact of mental health issues and drug abuse on the running of the criminal justice system. And invariably, that went hand in hand with people who um, did not have uh, economic means, were turning to um, other things uh, to, you know, as an outlet. And so those things went hand in hand. And our inability to both deal with the mental health problems and substance abuse problems really contributed um, to the criminal justice problem. We had, uh, as a fellow at the Institute of Politics, uh, a fellow named Tom Dart, who's the sheriff of Cook County here in Chicago, mm-hmm. runs the largest county jail in the country, I think. Mm-hmm. And he said that he, after a while, he came to realize he was he was running uh, the uh, 
the the nation's largest mental health yep. institution because so many people came in with mental health issues that were sort of integral to their incarceration and their problems and so on. And he's actually he brought in a uh, a psychiatrist as mm-hmm. the warden and mm-hmm. uh, is running all kinds That's of programs. Yeah, no, doing really creative really creative things. Well, one of the things that uh, ended up being a very useful tool uh, on the substance abuse side was something called drug courts, mm-hmm. which was pioneered by Janet Reno in the Miami-Dade uh, local um, criminal justice system and then got incorporated in the in the federal courts. And I saw it used in D.C. to great effect. And one wonders if there shouldn't be the same type of approach on the mental health side. There you know, it was a big movement the last few years in the Congress, kind of an alliance between the left and the right yeah. for criminal justice reform. Um, I don't know whether you have a sense of that or whether you've been following that and how that's likely to be impacted by the new administration. I don't know that. I don't know that uh, Jeff Sessions is is how receptive he is to that. I don't know the answer to that. What I do know is towards the end of the Obama administration, a lot of effort going in um, both on the Obama administration's part and, as you pointed out, folks in in Congress uh, on both sides of the aisle looking for some common ground on this issue. So you had the Obama administration working with the Koch brothers on criminal justice reform issues. if there's a way for that type of bipartisan work to continue in our uh, current environment, that would be a that would be a great thing. You uh, you went on to uh, you mentioned the Enron case, mm-hmm. probably one of the the, the, the signature uh, cases of the of of the whole financial manipulation yeah. um, history. In our country, maybe the largest. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you come? How did you go from uh, your d- doing drug night court in yeah. uh, D.C. to prosecuting uh, these executives of, of Enron? So it was, it was interesting. Not um, your your question is correctly um, skeptical as to how that would be a straight line. <laughs> um, so in the Washington D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, um, because it has such a broad um, jurisdiction and broad range of things. Uh, as a young prosecutor, you start in the misdemeanor court, as I mentioned, and then you make your way through a series of uh, parts of the office. And I um, worked in the office and did all of those, what they called them rotations, and ended up in the federal court side of the office prosecuting fraud and public corruption cases. So I was dealing with, by the time I left to join the Enron Task Force, I was dealing with and prosecuting fraud at the uh, local level uh, and public corruption cases. But the Enron case was a whole different um, scale. And what happened to me is uh, one of my um, colleagues in the U.S. Attorney's Office, Kathy Rumler, who you yes, know well. Yes, great friend of mine. Yeah, uh, former, former White, White House, House counsel. counsel. And a former colleague of mine, she and I met in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And in fact, our uh, first day of misdemeanor training as young baby prosecutors was September 10th, 2001. Hmm. And our second day was obviously September 11th. And uh, so we first met there and kind of went through the um, uh, rotation process in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and she left to join the Enron Task Force first. And when they needed another prosecutor to join um, the case that I ended up prosecuting, uh, she recommended me to uh, the then director of the Enron Task Force. So, talk about the experience of being on. That was an intense, intense case, and there was there weren't too many uh, uh, analogous cases in uh, no. in modern American history. No, as you said, it was the first um, kind of marquee um, prosecution for um, the financial um, scandals of um, of the period, and it followed what was at the time the largest bankruptcy um, ever uh, in the history of, of corporate America um, in December of 2001 when, when Enron went bankrupt. And a task force was formed, right? So the U.S. Attorney's Office in Houston, which would have been the U.S. Attorney's Office to uh, investigate and prosecute the fraud associated with Enron, recused itself. 
they uh, Enron had become such an engine and a magnet and a part of the lifeblood of the community that um, the Houston U.S. Attorney's Office recused itself. And so Mm. the Justice Department took an unusual step of forming a task force um, that was managed out of what they call Maine Justice, the headquarters in Washington, D.C. And it was populated by assistant U.S. attorneys drawn from offices around the country. So us from the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., others from New York, from San Francisco, from Chicago. Um, so that task force was formed, and then basically we ended up uh, splitting our time between D.C. and Houston. And uh, when we were in trial, as I was for many, many months, and as those who prosecuted the other cases were, we lived in Houston and um, became, uh, you know, kind of dual citizens for the time that we were uh, on the task force. What did you learn from that experience? That it was an incredibly complicated case when it comes down to, you know, vastly complicated and arcane accounting schemes and frauds. But at bottom, it was about greed. It was about greed and hubris. Uh, There was a great book written um, about probably the definitive book about the Enron um, fraud called The Smartest Guys in the Room. Mm -hmm. And it really... That title encapsulates it. These guys thought they were the smartest guys in the room and that they could monetize anything um, and that they could devise uh, schemes to uh, really cook the books and ultimately defraud their uh, their shareholders. So um, it really, for all the accounting manipulation, it really was about greed. Uh- Since you mentioned the word monetize, I think Mm -hmm. it's time for me to take a break uh, for a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back with Lisa Monaco. When you faced these, the accused in the Mm -hmm. Enron case, some of the major executives Mm -hmm. um, and well-known in the business community, certainly in the Texas business community and so on, but but nationally in the energy Mm -hmm. realm. Um, did, do you think that they uh, expected the outcome they got? I mean, were you, did they, did, did they realize how, how, how deeply enmeshed they were here? Some of them did. Um, and those folks ended up becoming usually cooperators for the government. Mm-hmm. And um, they, the, the classic story of somebody who ends up being a defendant and then ends up cooperating with the government is somebody who has to undergo, uh, first and foremost, being somebody who tells the truth and and acknowledges and accepts responsibility for what they did um, and uh, comes to grips with that through that process. And then how can, long did that take to break down those folks? Oh, sometimes it you know would take months. Mm-hmm. Um, and over a period of, uh, the task force was active for a number of years, and there were a number of different cases, from the broadband case that I worked on to the Skilling, okay, the Jeff Skilling and Ken Lay case, the two, mm-hmm. two um, big executives, the two big executives, um, who were hugely powerful figures, hugely powerful figures, obviously in the corporation, but then of course in the community, in a larger community in Houston, and then more broadly in terms of. Um, the corporate culture that arose uh, at the time. And uh, so having, and it's really quite a humbling experience and and can be very, um, really quite difficult to see somebody go through a recognition of what is at stake. And these folks, they had families, they have families, they, you know, it was, um, it was really something that I think prosecutors should really appreciate the devastation that um, can be wrought in people's lives, both for the victims of the crime and and for the families of those who were accused. I I came to this realization when I was a young kid, and a friend of mine, uh, the father of a friend of mine, uh, showed up on the front page of the local newspaper one day for having been caught for embezzlement. He was a small-time accountant, and he Mm -hmm. went to jail for many years. Um, And... uh, you know the family never recovered uh, from it, and I was re- I always recognize that as a reporter. You know yeah. that uh, uh, that there are lives beyond the life of the person who is uh, 
who is implicated. And it's important to recognize that as a prosecutor. And, you know, one of the things I learned going back to my beginnings in the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. when the, when the stakes were much smaller. But you realize how important it is. Our system of justice is built on the adversary system, and it's incredibly important that you have defense attorneys who are willing to represent even those who have done the most heinous crimes because they deserve a fair shake before the law. But it's also important to have principled prosecutors. And I learned this very early on when I was a baby prosecutor. And as I said, the stakes were low. But uh, I remember vividly, and I relayed this to young people who were talking about going into becoming, going into law enforcement or becoming prosecutors. Remember vividly the experience of processing a lot of low-level criminal cases, and it really is a bit of a volume business in any um, any big city. And I remember being before the judge one day, having my um, bag full of litigation bag full of fifty different files that, of cases that I had to that I had to uh, process before the judge that day, and one of the defense attorneys who had an equally heavy load came up to me and said, "Miss Monaco, we're ready to plead. We're we're ready to go right now." And I looked down at the case file and I saw that it didn't appear to me that a crime had been made out in the police report. And I said, counsel, don't you want to file a motion? He said, no, no, we're ready to go. Let's go. We're ready to go. We're ready to plead right now. He thought he was going to get a better deal, and he would move it along in the, in the process. And I insisted, counsel, don't you want to file a motion? And we went back and forth like that a few times. And ultimately, I dismissed the case hmm. because there was not a crime made out in the police report, which was the threshold matter you had to have before we could move on. I think it might have been a shoplifting case. It was very low level, but it stuck with me as being... That was someone's life there. Someone's life, and the, the you have to still hold everyone to account. You have to, everyone's got to do their job properly in the system if it's going to survive. In this jail here, uh, there are people who are there who are guilty or are accused, I should say, of, of heinous crimes. And then there are people who are there for things like shoplifting mm-hmm. who couldn't afford to make their bond and then sit there for a mm-hmm. very long time because uh, the court, the volume of uh, yeah. cases in the courts are such that they their cases never, uh, their cases aren't called. Yeah. And that seems in and of itself like an extraordinary injustice. Well, we're compounding the problem in, in some of these um, in some of these institutions when they get uh, so burdened. You went on uh, from there to the FBI um, and worked for Bob Mueller, the the uh, director of the FBI. How did that come about? So I was um, getting ready to leave the Enron Task Force. My case was done. And I was thinking about going out into the private sector and going to a law firm. And a friend of mine said that there was this potential job opening to work as counsel to Bob Mueller. And I didn't know Bob at the time, but his reputation inside the Justice Department was already one of legend there. Um, so he had been a former judge. He had been actually. He was a former uh, prosecutor, as an assistant U.S. attorney in San Francisco and in Boston. He had been the head of the criminal division uh, at the Justice Department. at the Justice Department in um, under George H. W. Bush, and then famously, as he left that pretty senior job in the in the Justice Department at the end of the George H. W. Bush administration, rather than go uh, to a law firm, which he did not enjoy doing. I think he spent maybe a couple of months. He went back to what we call back to the line, becoming a line prosecutor, a, a, um, a prosecutor prosecuting homicides because he just loved the work, which is a very, very um, unusual path for somebody who had reached the level of an assistant attorney general to go back to the line, as they say. So he had... Uh, he had great, Never on the bench. Never on the bench. Oh, my nope. mistake. No, never on the bench. I think um, be a little bit uh, too cloistered for him. Uh-huh. I think he would say. But uh, so he was, uh, and he had been the acting deputy attorney general at the beginning of the George W. Bush administration, and uh, assumed the job of director of the FBI five days before nine eleven. And uh, so at the time, 
uh, when this opportunity to go work for him arose. It was at the end of 2005, and it was a very uh, formative time, obviously, for the Justice Department and the FBI after 9-11. And I jumped at the opportunity to work for him, and I am so, so happy that I did. And talk a little bit about the FBI. It's Mm -hmm. been in the news quite a bit lately, probably more than the agency would like Mm -hmm. uh, to be in the news. But when you see the coverage of what's going on now um, and the investigations that have become very Mm -hmm. uh, prominent, Mm -hmm. um, what can you tell people about how the FBI operates that would there's a sense that this whole thing that that there are political motives behind these investigations yeah so um i don't believe there are political motives behind them i guess what i would say is for people to understand um the unique role that the fbi and the justice department plays in our system they have to understand that the justice department of which of course the fbi is a part really is a, a unique actor in the executive branch. It's the only cabinet agency that has basically a dual hat job. They have to at once be a policy um, implementer of the president, whoever the president is, of his or her policies, but also have a completely independent role when it comes to investigating and prosecuting. And it's the only agency that really wears that dual hat. And Uh, career Justice Department officials, of which I was very privileged to serve as one for many years, and FBI officials really prize that and um, believe to their core that it's an important role to be both uh, to retain that independent uh, prosecutor and investigator role. You know that obviously there's a lot of disconsternation among supporters of Hillary Clinton who felt that uh, Jim Comey, uh, Bob Mueller's successor as mm-hmm. FBI director, uh, played um, a uh, uh, a role in in her defeat by twice inserting himself into the uh, into the election. What was your thought? What was your reaction when that was going on? And I know you were closely with him in your job in, at Homeland Security in, as the Homeland Security. Yeah, Department. I I think that um, as I've said before. Um, I do not think that Jim Comey is a partisan actor. I think that, and he has spoken to this about um, why he did what he did. What I will say about that episode is there is uh, a lot of good reason why there are regular process and procedures that have been observed um, over time uh, that, of course, um, you know, has been described as the ones that um, Jim Comey deviated from. And he did, as was acknowledged, and it's highly unusual. My own view is that the process and the procedures that are put in place for not making statements close to an election, et cetera, uh, are in place not for the easy cases, but for the really hard times. And it's important to adhere to them. I think I'll leave it at that. Uh huh. Well, one derives from your comment that you think perhaps he should have hewed to that practice. I think it's important to adhere to the to the practice. So this is a podcast. People can't see you, but uh, you're a woman, obviously. Yes. You're. I know you're tough as nails, but you're soft-spoken. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you're not terribly tall. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And you've risen up through this very male-dominated world. What were the challenges associated with that? You know, it's interesting. I get asked that question a lot. Um, I think growing up with three brothers helped, um, and parents who instilled in me a view that I could do whatever I wanted as long as I worked hard to get it. Uh, But I was frequently the only woman in the room or the only woman at the table. And um, being competent in speaking up and giving my view, whether it was an obvious point to me, maybe it wasn't an obvious point to everyone else, uh, and being willing to do that took some time, but uh, it was something I keep coming back to and and remembering as being very important. And did people, did you confront what you felt were um, obvious uh, 
cases of, of, of sexism? Did you feel disrespected at times? I think I can't point to specific disrespect. I think there, I can think of times when I feel like I made a point and then maybe the man next to me at the table made the point and it only seemed to get recognized when he made the point. Um, whether that's gender or whether I wasn't making it forcefully enough, who knows? Uh, tried not to dwell on that, though, and uh, just continue to, to bear down on speaking up. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about mm-hmm. how you came to this. You went to the, back to the Justice Department mm-hmm. and you worked on, uh, on uh, counterterrorism. Mm-hmm. And ha- ha- uh, t- talk about that experience and what did you learn uh, in that role mm-hmm. about the threats that we face uh, and uh, the things that we should be concerned about. So it, it did start my really immersion in national security and counterterrorism issues and homeland security issues started really in earnest when I was at the FBI. And um, at the time, Bob Mueller and I as his chief of staff were engaged in, and I was trying to help him, really transform that agency after 9-11 into being a national security organization focused on preventing the next attack as opposed to solely a backward-looking criminal investigative agency investigating something that happens after the fact. So Mm -hmm. prevention of of the next terrorist attack was was the number one priority. And Bob Mueller drove the agency to really change and um, incorporate that kind of intel-driven philosophy. And that was hard. So it was a lot of uh, change management, which I did not expect to see from a kind of business and management culture when I decided to go work uh, with Bob. And it was very informative, and it and it showed me that um, an organization responds to the time spent by its leaders. And we spent the first three hours of every day solely focused on the terrorist threats to the country. And, uh, that, and let me just ask you about sure. that. Were you sh- surprised uh, about the the nature and volume of those? I was. I absolutely was. So when I started at the FBI, was the first time I uh, became a consumer of the president's daily brief and the morning threat. It was referred to at the time as the threat matrix. Literally, um, the the threat streams that were pouring in uh, overnight, every night, uh, of al-Qaeda and others bent on doing this country harm, and how the FBI as part of the intelligence community and the rest of the government in a post-9-11 environment digested that, coordinated uh, information about those threats, and mounted responses to them was, um, it was a baptism um, uh, in fire for me to see all that. Uh, up close, and it frankly became um, what I lived and breathed then for the next decade. So as at the FBI, I joined the meeting every morning that the director and the attorney general would have going over that president's daily brief, those intelligence reports, and I continued to be a consumer uh, and part of that same meeting in for the next 10 years. Uh, Forget about uh, what you digest in the morning? How'd you sleep at night? <laughs> so it, uh, it's a process, right? It was an evolution. Um, a lot of times, and particularly as I think you can probably appreciate, when I got to the White House, there were a lot of times I was woken up at night, <laughs> most often by the Situation Room. Um, and uh, it is sobering to see uh, those who would try and do this country harm, whether it's here or Americans overseas or our partners. Um, but I, and I've said this before, but I was able, I get asked that question a lot, how are you able to sleep at night? The, the reason is the incredible dedication and professionalism of the men and women, whether it's in the intelligence community, the military, law enforcement, the the change that this country went through after 9-11 and this focus on a unity of effort across all of those disciplines um, was an incredible thing to be a part of. I was there for a couple of years in the White House and had some sense of uh, of the sort of trap. John Brennan was in your role yep. then. I used to actually say I, I slept better at night knowing that he never did. Mm-hmm. But um, 
But the other thing I got a sense of was just how um, how much activity there was yep. all the time, and I don't think people have a sense of that. Um, how on a on a on a weekly basis, yep. what would you be dealing with, and how much, and how often do you think potential problems? Uh, problems, disasters, are, are thwarted by mm-hmm. the work that, that's being done? So there is a tremendous amount that goes on and that is uh, that has been thwarted that people will never know about, and rightly so. Um, but but it, is, it is the case that there's a tremendous amount that um, has been thwarted that people will never know. Um, in terms of the range, it was dizzying. Um, when I was at the Justice Department, before I went to the White House, I was the Assistant Attorney General for National Security. So it was the division that was created in the Justice Department after 9-11 to bring all the terrorism and espionage and other prosecutors together under one roof, working with their intelligence counterparts. So in that seat, I obviously saw a heavy dose of terrorism and spies. When I got to the White House, that aperture was broadened even further to include in my role as Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor everything from terror attacks and threats here at home as well as overseas to cyber attacks and cyber threats to pandemic threats and emerging infectious disease, which um, is a, a growing concern to natural disasters like floods and fires and hurricanes, to, frankly, um, other issues that, like school shootings that um, may be a crisis in a community that we may not be aware or, or understand what the provenance of it is at mm-hmm. the very beginning. So that was the full panoply, and, and on a weekly basis, I would be dealing um, with something in every one of those buckets, potentially, my third week on the job as President Obama's counterterrorism advisor was the uh, week of the Boston Marathon bombing. Yeah. And I began that week dealing with a uh, new strain of bird flu that was coming out of China and making sure we were prepared for that in the U.S. government, to the Boston Marathon bombing, to a ricin attack. People forget this, but there was a ricin, a live ricin was mailed to uh, Capitol Hill. And uh, we had to um, work with the FBI to make sure we were we were finding out where that had come from, as well as tell people how to respond to and what they should be worried about and what they shouldn't, to a whole uh, range of other problems across the across that week. And just in one week, my third week on the job, we had all of those things. Yeah, I want to ask you about the Boston Marathon bombing. Uh, Going to take a short break, and we'll be right okay. back with Lisa Monaco. This was more than a professional assignment uh, for you. This was more than your responsibility uh, as the Homeland Security Advisor. You came from here, and you had family there. Yeah, I did. um, So as I mentioned, it was my third week on the job, and it was Patriot's Day that Monday, April 15th, uh, 2013. And I remember as a kid always having that day off. It was always a holiday in Boston, and we would always go for as long back as I can remember, whether I was in grade school or high school, it was a big event with my brothers and my friends and I to go watch the race. And uh, my family's home, uh, and my parents still live there, is a few blocks from the crest of Heartbreak Hill, the famous you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, last big steep hill right near Boston College. And it was a perfect place. Uh, to watch the race, and that's where we would always go and set up and cheer on the runners um, as they crested Heartbreak Hill. My oldest brother, uh, Peter, has uh, has run the uh, the race in, in past years, uh, and uh, at the time he still lived right by the finish line, and I knew my twin brother, Chris, was going to be uh, taking up the normal uh, spot watching um, watching the race, and I was worried, quite frankly, that he might have my nieces uh, in tow at the time. So my thoughts were very much both about how to do my job 
to provide information to the president and help advise him and work with the rest of the principals of the Homeland Security Council to respond to this. And thinking in the back of my mind, um, you know, where's my family? And and you couldn't find them for a while. Is that I couldn't. Right? Um, and uh, the I got a email uh, late that night from um, I believe from my mother who had, who had said that you know obviously all was well, but uh, it's. It was very much. I have. I had tremendous um, reference points for uh, that whole community and what the Boston Marathon means to people who um, grew up in and around Boston and for whom that race is is such a fixture of their growing up. And uh, it, you know, the the Boston Strong um, phrase, uh, I think, is so apt both because of what I understand about that community um, and with what we saw specifically in terms of how the community responded to that horrible day. Did the president know that you were, uh, that your family was, was unaccounted for when you were briefing him? Um, I don't believe he did. Uh, it's not something I raised, and I don't think it's something anybody else Did he ever raised. learn that after the fact? I think he did learn that after the fact, uh-huh. yeah. Um, you so you have this incredible span because the, the 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 threat the nature of the threats have changed over uh, over time. How have they changed? How, what do you worry about today uh, that you didn't worry about as much when you started in this work? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and 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 where do you see this all going? So the the things I worry about most. Now, um, and to a lesser degree when I started, certainly in the White House, uh, are three things. Terrorist attacks that have reached a different phase, a new phase, where we, through tremendous work over multiple administrations and great professionalism, we have done a tremendous job at reducing the risk of a catastrophic 9-11-style attack. Command and control kind of attack. Decimation of core al-Qaeda, keeping pressure on uh, those overseas, whether it's al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and Pakistan to um, its now largest affiliate in Syria to AQAP, its affiliate in Yemen. So keeping sustained pressure on those nodes so that they cannot effectively mount external attacks against us. It's still a worry. And I and my successors and anyone who's been in the counterterrorism world never say never, but we have done a lot to protect ourselves. But the new phase we're in is one where you don't have to travel. You don't have to receive external direction. You don't have to have command and control. You can be inspired online, um, sitting in your basement, and have what we call a very quick flash to bang, not a lot of careful planning and um, uh, study going into a complex, long, drawn-out attack as 9-11 was, but rather having somebody being inspired from ISIS messaging um, and the proliferation on social media of their vile, vile, brutal messaging and have that contribute to um, somebody's... um, somebody's psyche that turns them into somebody who becomes a mass murderer, as we saw in Orlando and and other, uh, unfortunately, other events. So that, figuring out how to address that self-radicalization, that quick flash to bang, is a very, very hard challenge for law enforcement and the intelligence community, because you don't need to take any of the actions that otherwise would have brought you into our net, the net that we created after 9-11. I know that you are um, determinedly um, nonpartisan in your approach to mm-hmm. all of this, but I do have to ask you about uh, the current administration. Um, and I mean, the president's been very outspoken on the issue mm-hmm. of terrorism and said, uh, instituted his travel ban mm-hmm. uh, in response to what he said was uh, enormous threats uh, mm-hmm. that we face. What was your reaction to that? Uh, as someone who is steeped in this, and um, do you feel that that was an appropriate step? Did it make it 
did it make us safer, less mm-hmm. safe? How did you view that? So um, I was not in favor of that, and I joined a friend of the court brief uh, opposing both the first travel ban and the revised order, um, and for a few reasons. One, I think it's absolutely important for a new administration, any administration, to constantly be looking at what we can do to screen and vet and make sure we're doing everything we can uh, to understand people who want to come to this, the greatest nation on earth. That's completely fair. And we took a number of steps in the Obama administration to refine and learn lessons and incorporate those into our vetting process. So there ought to be very rigorous vetting. I did not believe that the travel ban was the right way to go about it um, because I think for two main reasons. It undercuts our ability to work with partners. The first version of the travel ban included Iraq on that list. We need and need to work with the Iraqi security forces and the Iraqi people to combat ISIS in Iraq and Syria. And what message are we sending to those partners if we are taking a very blunt instrument in that travel ban. Uh, second version didn't include Iraq. Second version did not include Iraq. But it um, brings me to my second point, which is the that travel ban, without any attention to specific threat, uh, without any specific threat focus, but just having a blanket ban on all nationals from those countries, played in... Uh, to what I believe is the main messaging and recruiting point that ISIS makes, which is you, America, and the West are in a fight against us, Islam. And when we do things to contribute to that recruiting message, we're helping them. We are helping them recruit. And I frankly don't think we ought to be in the business of that. We shouldn't contribute to the message of ISIS and other uh, terrorist and jihadist groups that want to, um, to promote the idea that we're in a clash of civilizations. We shouldn't contribute to that. Do you think it increases the likelihood of some of this um, re- self-radicalization that you're talking I, about? I think it contributes, yes, to ISIS messaging um, that is already proliferating on social media. Um, I, you know, I used to say that al-Qaeda... Al-Qaeda did its own form of propaganda. They published a magazine that was distributed in PDF form in um, chat rooms that were populated by just Al-Qaeda veterans who could get in there with a password. Today, that's the eight-track tape version of what we're seeing (laughs) today. And now we're seeing um, uh, ISIS uh, exploit social media and, frankly, the greatest engine of of um, free speech and creativity that I think the U.S. has given the world in the last couple of decades. And ironically, they're exploiting that for very cruel and brutal um, um, And how do you combat ends. that? So we've learned a few things over the last couple of years about what makes sense for government to do and what makes sense for government not to do. What we learned is government shouldn't be the messenger that when we try to counter ISIS's violent message with something that has the seal of the U.S. government on it, it's probably not going to be the most effective. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we learned is, first we need to understand what is compelling about ISIS's message. And here I learned something kind of counterintuitive. They're not recruiting young people with images of um, beheadings. We brought in some technical experts and some marketing experts and experts from Silicon Valley, and they said, Lisa, they're recruiting these kids with themes of strength and warmth. And that was very, very um, telling to me. And it informed how we changed our counter-messaging, which is to say, we said, government shouldn't be the ones to be the messenger. We should amplify and give... um, legitimate voices, whether it's legitimate or moderate imams or other voices from the region. We need the Arabic version of Stephen Colbert, for instance. Pair him or her up with YouTube and Facebook and others who understand how to really use these platforms for good and bring them together and 
amplify those voices. We in government can help do that, and that's what we were doing over the last couple of years in the Obama administration. You, uh, I can't let you go without talking about what happened last year, about cybersecurity generally mm-hmm. and your concern sure. about it. It's obviously an area of expertise for you, mm-hmm. uh, but about also what happened re- uh, with Russia yeah. in the last year. When did you become aware that uh, the Russians were... I assume you con- agree with the conclusion of the intelligence community that Russia did interfere in our election. Sure. Um, what we saw was, and we got this in the report from uh, first in October from the statement, the unprecedented statement that was made by the director of national intelligence. But, but you knew well before that. Sure. We knew before that. And what we did, what's interesting, David, is we um, – we knew and the world knew, and there had been um, reports from cybersecurity companies and others earlier in the summer. But what we wanted to do is, A, make sure that our first priority was being addressed, which was protection of the election system, making sure there was no um, intrusion and that the integrity of the election process was maintained. And we um, said to the intelligence community and law enforcement community, do what you have done before, whether it was Iran, North Korea and the Sony attack, uh, China and their economic cyber-enabled economic espionage against companies here. Tell us if you can attribute, determine who did this, and then what can you say about it publicly that isn't going to expose our sources and methods and then weaken our ability uh, to use those tools in the future. And so that's what you saw happen in October when the intelligence community came out with its unprecedented statement saying Russia had uh, intruded in and sought to interfere in our election process, even at the highest levels of the Russian government. And then fast forward to January, the president ordered uh, a full accounting of what happened not only, and I think this sometimes gets lost, David, not only of the Russian interference in 2016, but going back to 2008. And as you recall, having been part of yes. the campaign, the Chinese interference into both the Obama and mm-hmm. the McCain campaigns. So what we saw here is um, w- that we have entered, we in the United States, have entered a new threshold and crossed into a new threshold where we have state actors and others trying to use these cyber tools in new ways to intrude in our election process, to weaponize information. So President Obama said, take a look at all of that, get one accounting on the record so that we can learn as much as we possibly can so that we can prevent it from happening again. And what we've seen from the intelligence professionals is a clarity on the fact that whether it's Russia or others and copycats or other nation states or other non-state actors, that we're bound to see something like this again. And so I really think we need to be turning a, a lot more attention to understanding that, shoring up our defenses, and understanding how we can prevent it from happening again. But again, uh, I guess my question is, when were you personally first aware of this? Well, in terms of the DNC hack itself, was the... um, I'm talking about the Russian connection to it. uh, She's going back now sometime um, over the summer. Mm -hmm. But the, obviously the, um, and, but the, the um, CrowdStrike, which was the, private security uh, firm that was hired by the DNC, they issued a report, um, I think, back in July Mm -hmm. about about the hack and linking it to Russian um, uh, tools, as they say, in the cybersecurity business or uh, malware. It's become fraud, obviously, because of the... uh comments of, of, again, of Director Comey suggesting that the FBI is uh, examining potential links between players uh, in the Trump campaign and and the Russians. How seriously do you take that? I mean, how how persuaded are you that this is an area that needs to be explored? I think it's exceptionally important, and it ought to be exceptionally important to all Americans that we had a nation-state, Russia, that has become increasingly aggressive. If you look back over the last five, six years, there's something that's called the Worldwide Threat Hearing every year. 
and the director of national intelligence, the head of the FBI, the other intelligence heads testify in open hearing before the intelligence committees. And for the last several years running, they have talked about the cyber threat eclipsing the counterterrorism threat as the top, or the terrorism threat rather, as the top threat that we face. And they have talked um, in the last several years about the increasingly aggressive action of Russia and others, but certainly Russia in this space. So we ought to be, and, and then you saw in 2016, um, Russia seek to interfere in our democratic process. So as Americans, we ought to be exceptionally sure, and concerned. about the Russian incursion, but what about the participation of people who might have been associated with the campaign? There ought to be a bipartisan um, approach to that. Obviously, we saw um, Director Comey testify that the FBI is doing an investigation. Uh, and otherwise, there ought to be I think it's very important that there be a bipartisan uh, approach to this uh, on Capitol Hill. It's something that, frankly, we tried very hard to do with respect to the cybersecurity of the state and local election systems over the summer. It was exceptionally important that there be bipartisan support for the federal government's help to the state and local systems, because whatever else we uh, seek to understand about the Russian interference over last summer. All agree, all intelligence agencies agreed that one of their motives was certainly to sow discord and confusion and a lack of confidence in our election system and in our democracy. And so it was very important that we have a bipartisan approach, and I think that importance continues today. But we know, you know, this has devolved at, in, into a little bit of a scrap, partly instigated by the president, but um, relative to one of your uh, old colleagues, Susan Rice, national security uh, advisor, who you worked with and for, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you're not going to comment on what whatever she she personally did, but can you lift the veil on masking, as it were, and explain what that process is? Uh, the charge was that she unmasked people related to Trump in a way that was somehow untoward. A lot of people have knocked that down. Yeah. But that's not my question. My question is, what is the process? What, 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 how do you handle intelligence? And what is the process of unmasking? And who's involved in it? So the, the uh, as you said, a lot of people have knocked this down. Um, the bipartisan intelligence professionals um, have commented in the last couple of days on this. And I've heard General Hayden, General who Hayden, the Republican John, administration. John McLaughlin, Keith Alexander. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have described the process, and it goes like this, which is every morning uh, senior national security officials receive intelligence reports in their daily book. Uh, and this is something that has gone on for decades and was really uh, made more robust after 9-11 so that everyone could as the phrase goes, connect the dots. So we're seeing that information. Importantly, those intelligence reports are produced by the intelligence community because it's what they think the professionals in the intelligence community believe is of national security importance. So these aren't reports that I or others would choose. So they, every national security official um, gets these reports. Senior national security officials get these reports. And they. it is not unusual or uncommon for the reports of foreign intelligence collection to reference U.S. citizens or uh, reference conversations of or about U.S. citizens if if they occur in the context of collection on a foreign intelligence target, whether it's a terrorist or a spy or a diplomat. But the names of the U.S. citizens are not present in that report. They are, as they say, masked. They're referred to as U.S. Person 1, U.S. Person 2. If it is necessary to understand the significance of that report, the senior official can ask that that be unmasked, that they get more information about what's at issue in that report. Including the name of the person. Including the name of the person. But importantly, that request goes back to 
the intelligence community or the agency who's responsible for that report. And there is a process, and Admiral Rogers, the head of the NSA. National Security mm-hmm. Agency, testified about this a few weeks ago. There's a process that is overseen um, for dealing with that request, and the intelligence community or the intelligence agency who's responsible for that report will make a determination as to whether or not it's appropriate to share that information back with the requester. And then importantly, the information goes back only to the requester and it's not blasted widely. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there can be lots of reasons why it's important to have that greater information. You might have, um, as we saw, there was a report today in the public, in the press, that ISIS has um, unleashed a new set of names that they have stolen through cyber means of U.S. persons that they're they're trying to foment on a kill list, and they've done this before. You might want to know who those people are to understand who they're going after. You might want to know if a if a nation state or a cyber criminal is targeting a business in this country to try and steal their information. Those are all reasons why it would be important to understand further information about the U.S. person or the business that's referenced in the report. Now, to talk a little bit, and then we have to go. I'd love to ask you about a number of other things, but um, what you're what you're going to do now? You're doing some teaching, I think. Yeah, right? so I am um, very lucky to be a distinguished senior fellow at the New York University Law School. They have uh, a center on law and security and a cybersecurity center there that I'm uh, working with, and I'm going to teach a seminar also in the fall on national security law and policymaking. Uh, And so it's a tremendous treat for me to get to engage with the students and the faculty there and um, to take a step back from 20-plus years in government and, you know, spending all of that time in uh, windowless rooms, my former office in the West yes, Wing that you know I well, remember, and the yeah. Situation Room. Yeah, also the opportunity to probably scare the hell out of them too. A little bit of that as well. Yeah, Lisa Monaco, thank you for being here. Thank you for being at the Institute of Politics, and thanks for your service. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of the Axe Files, visit cnn.com/podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.